My guest in studio today is a familiar voice if you're someone who listens to The Richard Krause Show. <laughs> Larry Weinstein is here, uh, director of Dreaming of a Jewish Christmas, Our Man in Tehran, the Emmy-winning The War Symphony is Oscar-nominated, uh, Making Overtures. You were here recently yes. uh, talking about long-distance swimmers with your daughter, uh, Ali, uh, who's also a great filmmaker, made a really, really beautiful movie about mermaids a couple of uh, years ago, and you're working with her a little bit, sort of on and off now, right? I, I would like to work with her always because yeah. um, she's like a far more competent version of me. <laughs> um, <laughs> and is multi, can multitask in every direction of filmmaking, unlike me. But uh, yeah, that was a wonderful experience. To actually co-direct with your daughter in a film that's about generational things. Yeah. Very moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the and the movie's great. And remind me what it's called? It's called The Impossible Swim. The Impossible Swim. And it's fantastic. You should be able to find it streaming somewhere right yeah now, right? It, it's through tsn yeah and uh but but they quite liked it and i hear they may even try to put a full network and, and oh, great. give it another life and and then we'll try to get it out there it's a life. lovely movie so we're here today though not to talk about that not to talk about your daughter she can come <laughs> back another time love her but she's not involved in this uh project called propaganda <laughs> the art of selling lies this is your new film and it will be playing uh, at film festivals it's playing at Hot Docs in Toronto is playing in Vancouver. Yeah, Doxa. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you'll be able to see it that way. And then in May, it's coming to theaters and it will be in a theater near you. But I wanted to get you on now, uh, just before the, the festival run of the film, because I think that this is a, a film that's a little different for you to make. You don't normally mm -hmm. make essay films. You don't normally make movies that uh, tell the history of a, of a particular subject, or in this case, sort of an idea. Um, and it's a complicated one, yes. but it's a timely one, and it's an important one to talk about. So I wanted to start, I guess, uh, just talking about how we define propaganda for the purposes of this film, and maybe just the purposes of our lives. How do you define propaganda? It's funny, you know, I, I, um, I've been thinking about propaganda for a very long time, and I, I saw, um, I just discovered uh, a project that I did when I was 17 years old. Yeah, you made a propaganda film. I, yeah. <laughs> a vegan propaganda I, film. I'd, oh, well, there's that. Yeah, I made a, a film about the slaughterhouse after I had become vegetarian, and it was propaganda, and I thought, oh, I want to become a documentary filmmaker. Look at how people <laughs> listen to this, because a lot of people in my school became vegetarian. Right. But just after that, uh, I did a project uh, with a friend, and it's it, I had forgotten about it. I just discovered it. It's called Propaganda Film. Wow. And it covers a lot of the material that actually is in this film. <laughs> I haven't progressed in any way for the last 45 years. And it's a little both, it's both delightful and depressing at the same time. But but always that struggle about propaganda. And, and there's, you know, it's easy to be facile about it. And I now, unfortunately, because I've made this film, of propaganda, the the art of selling lies, I, the voices of the people in my film come to my head. So, right. so they they say things like, uh, "Well, Astra Taylor says propaganda is political brainwashing," or Adam Phillips, the great psychoanalyst, it's a calculated attack on the complexity of other people's minds. Uh, Shepard Fairey, the man who did the Obama Hope poster, yes. says it's the invisible hand. It's getting you to submit without realizing consciously that you are submitting. And then, you know, there's these questions about, but if you are surrounded by propaganda, how can you possibly know what is the truth? Well, and that's what makes this film so timely for 2019, where we sit today. 
we go back or you go back in this film and detail the history of propaganda. We'll get to that in a second. But in an era of fake news, in an mm. era where you kind of don't know, as I scroll through my Twitter feed, it's sometimes, which is a source of news for a lot of people, it's sometimes hard to tell what's true, what's fake, what's deliberately fake, what's misinformation, yes. and how to process it all. And that's what makes this film important because it does try and, uh, in a certain way anyway, at least get us thinking about the idea of propaganda. We all shout fake news when we don't like something, but I don't know that people think about it much beyond the, the, the platitude of saying fake news. You have to really understand where propaganda came yeah, from yeah. to understand why fake news is such a, a, an insidious part of, of our recent culture. Yes. Well, propaganda, you know, really started uh, with, with language, with art. Um, it, it, you know, um, it's, it's, it is also a difficult subject because George Orwell said all art is propaganda. Well, everything is propaganda. Everything in, is propaganda. In, in a certain way, everything is yes. propaganda. Yeah, and, um, and we've chosen to, to look at, uh, at propaganda through the prism of art. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the art of selling lies. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's so, so really that, that has existed from the beginning. I, I was very um, ple- – of course, you know, I had seen um, The Cave of Forgotten Dreams mm-hmm. – by uh, Herzog uh, years ago when when it was kind of announced that these cave drawings are much older than any cave drawings we knew about. They're 32,000 years old. And then in the, in the research stage of this film, uh, we found uh, this, this um, archaeologist, Alistair Pike, who had gone to Spanish caves and, and not just dated the uh, drawings to be at least 65,000 years. They may be as old as 150,000 years, by the way. He can only tell the minimum from the dating. But um, that they were not even homo sapiens, that they were Neanderthal artists. And um, again, like like the the um, the Homo sapien artists in in Cave of Forgotten Dreams, there's a lot of handprints, mm-hmm. which kind of feels like they're looking, they're waving into the yeah, future. Yeah. I exist, but there's also abstract drawings. There there are of course the animal drawings, um, and then some very symbolic. It's symbolic art, and and it's believed that this was stuff. And some of it you can't even. You see, like, like they're they're up in little crevices that right. you can't even really see. It's almost like this is for the gods or right. something. Yeah, yeah. But also, just to, there's this whole mystical quality, and and it's kind of hypothesized that that maybe these were the shamans taking people into the caves with fire lamps and somehow making them holier than thou. Yeah, yeah. And that this was a kind of, of if this was to inspire people. Also the the all all just the cave itself. You can bang all the stone structures and hear this beautiful sound. We weren't allowed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's something very mystical. It's like a, an ancient cathedral in right. a way. Yeah. I'm speaking with Larry Weinstein. The film is called Propaganda, The Art of Selling Lies, doing a festival run that it will open uh, for general audiences in May. Uh, you'll be able to find it that way. Uh, talking about the, the age-old practice of propaganda. So all art, I think, as Orwell says, is propaganda. I think, you know, uh, you look back at paintings done in the Renaissance, you know, if you if you paint out the syphilitic scars on the, <laughs> on the, on the queen's face, you know, that's propaganda in a way, presenting a different image than, 
the than the reality to the, yes. to the public. Yes. Well, um, certainly when you have the royalty, yeah. uh, it's to, to make them more godlike yeah, as yeah. soon as they have portraits. And and the first person who, who we're aware of who, who used things like that was Alexander the Great because his empire was so huge and he couldn't be everywhere. Right. He started um, – not only having statues erected uh, uh, all over the place of, of himself, but also for the first time, they started taking the images of gods off coins. It wasn't just Hercules or Heracles. It was it was Alexander, Alexander the Great. Right. So so people saw his image every day, and this was a kind of propaganda to remind you who is in charge, um, which 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 is uh, very interesting. Yeah. And and I think in, in a lot of ways, that's the way Trump uses Twitter now. Yes. You know, 25 million followers or plus maybe more than that now. Uh, and, and well, you know. I think 50. Although they've, they've reduced, yesterday they reduced the number of Oh, followers. did they? Yeah. yeah no, yeah. I haven't. I, and I, he's I, very upset that, right. that Obama has twice as many followers as him, which people aren't aware of. Oh, I didn't o- know that. Yes. Yeah, yeah I, I, I haven't looked, but it's it's millions and millions of, yes. millions of followers. Yes, tens of millions. Uh, tens of millions. And, and, you know, over the weekend, 51 tweets one after the other, yes. you know. So it, it's a way of just saying, listen, to his base, connecting to his yes. base in a very direct way, uh, you know, here I am. It's Alexander the Great on coins. It's him yes. on Twitter. Well, he's saying that I can I can respond, I can communicate to you directly. I don't need to go through the news media. Yeah. Most of those people are fake news, whereas I only tell the truth, which, of course, we know. If, if any of us know poor Daniel yeah, Dale. Yeah, Daniel Dale, man, that guy. He's I, a... Yeah. That guy is a fact checker, Trump's fact checker. And uh, every speech, every day he releases, you know, a list of of things that that Trump has said that just are blatantly untrue. And it's a staggering amount of stuff. It's it's almost 10,000 lies right now uh, or untruths, as he says, because he says lies are intentional. And sometimes Trump says things unintentionally (laughs) untruthful. Uh, but but he's not that conscious of it because right. he doesn't always have consciousness. Yeah, no, the tr- Trump. I have to say, um, Donald Trump was very much. I, I, this sounds ridiculous, but he was very much my muse for this film. I would wake up in the morning. The first thing I do, ask my poor wife, is yeah. is look at uh, his tweets. Right. Uh, I'm not a follower, but you can still check the tweets, and um, <laughs> and I'd be infuriated by him. And when I was infuriated, I would start to write. Right. And um, the people I was working with were encouraging me to be in a bad mood. So <laughs> It's a fascinating movie, and we're talking about some of the experts that you brought in. Uh, we have to talk about Jim Fitzpatrick, who created the Viva Che uh, image of Che Guevara that, that everyone has <laughs> seen. And, you know, the thing about this image is uh, there's a fantastic shirt that I've seen people wearing on Queen Street up and down mm-hmm. here where it'll have the image and then it'll be worn by a young person and then it says, I have no idea who this is <laughs> written underneath <laughs> it. But for people of an age, of a certain age, Che Guevara is either a hero or a, a villain, depending on, on which way you're looking at him. Uh, but there is no denying the iconic impact of that picture. So tell me about Jim Fitzpatrick and why that image is so vitally important yeah. in terms of propaganda. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that that image of Che Guevara, the the red with the black, you know, it's red, black, and white yep. with a little yellow star, which he always did by hand, Jim Fitzpatrick, because he didn't have the money to make posters with right. a, that extra color. <laughs> um, but I would argue that it's probably the most iconic 
image, um, political image of the 20th century because you know, there's there's a very famous photo of Mao, uh, and yep. and of course, then later, um, well, I guess I guess the next century was was Obama. But but um, yeah, I mean, there isn't the picture of Stalin or the picture of Hitler or the picture like we we know these yeah. names obviously, but um, yeah, that image of Che Guevara. So I was surprised, like so many people, to to learn. That that I assumed the image was was created by a Cuban or an Argentinian, where he was born, or um, but but in fact it was an Irishman, and who who uh, as a very young man was a, a bartender uh, in in Dublin and um, or near Dublin, and uh, Che Guevara had been flying around the world and and there was it was fog he was fog bound and was forced to stay in Ireland for a couple of days and Jim Fitzpatrick met him and recognized him instantly of course and was honored to to know a man that he thought was of the importance of a Martin Luther King and and then he kept track of what happened to him and when he found out that he had been um, arrested and then assassinated okay. in Bolivia in 67 um, he, uh, he was just so, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a it was major devastating for him. Yeah, yeah, it was devastating. So, so he said, no, no, we're not, you know, in Ireland, we have our war and people are disappeared mm-hmm. as they call it. And, and now they were trying to disappear. Jake Varney says, this will not happen. And he created this, he took a, a famous photo, photo by a photographer named Corda, and then he altered it a bit and gave it that incredible punch of color. And he said, no. Uh, F you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he will not be disappeared. He's going to live, and I'm going to call this Viva Che. Live yeah. Che. Um, and and so that image just started, and he and he made it free for use for anyone of left wing or revolutionary and, purposes. And that's the amazing part of this, right? Yeah. And one of, I mean, here's a here's an artist who created one of the best known images of the 20th century, who never made a dime off it. That's right. <laughs> yeah, he's not. He doesn't have much money. Yeah, he's done a lot of record covers, yeah. um, uh, and and he does uh, some work that's a uh, graphic novel, comic right. book kinds of things, and they're beautiful. Mm-hmm. But this is this is. Amazing, yeah. I'm speaking with Larry Weinstein. The film is called Propaganda, The Art of Selling Lies. Uh, When you're casting a film like this, you cast a documentary. You look around and find the talking heads and the the people that you will profile. Um, How do you make sure that people are interesting? Do you have, you know, a hundred people that you shoot with and then you just use the best stuff? Or how does it work? No, you, you, in this case, um, I worked closely with, with writers, um, to, to help me, you know, kind of pound it into shape a little bit and pound me into shape a bit. <laughs> um, so Andrew Edmonds and, and David Morton and the producers, uh, Eskilis Poulos and Sonia Dirien. So we'd have these meetings and talk about, I mean, it was a matter of what elements, what areas to right. cover and then who would best would be the best spokespeople for those areas. And there were a lot of area, a lot of things that we were reaching for that we did not get. Um, and uh, I knew I wanted to have more about uh, religious propaganda, for instance. And I, I did write a personal letter to Richard Dawkins, for instance. Um, or, um, yeah, I mean, there were a lot of people that we went to, um, David Frum, um, 
uh, and and sometimes it was like people said yes, but the timing didn't work right, out either because yeah, yeah. um, people are all, all working overtime in the Trump era. <laughs> 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 but but I just wanted to make sure we had representation. Um, uh, and and so so I'm extremely pleased. I, I actually think we overshot. We maybe we have a, a couple, two or three or five more people than we really even should have. Yeah. Just just, um, but uh, it's hard. It's like eating peanuts. You can't stop once you, you start doing propaganda. Yeah, <laughs> that, we, we'll continue talking about propaganda. Uh, Shepard Ferry is a fascinating uh, artist as well. Created the Obama Hope poster. Uh, and this is, again, you know, what the, the Viva Che image was, you know, to the, the 60s, late 60s, 70s, uh, and up until today, but really in the 70s, I remember seeing it everywhere. The Obama Hope poster seemed to be that for the first part of this century, of yes. the 21st century. So uh, it, it, it was in some ways a, a beacon of hope, just how powerful those four letters were uh, at the bottom of this poster. You know, it really Really, really, I think, was one of the key images that helped get Barack Obama elected to president, uh, to the presidency. Yes. Yeah, I think that um, it's, it's such a strong poster. It's such a strong image. He was inspired by the Che Guevara, mm-hmm. Jim Fitzpatrick poster. And it was interesting. I got the chance to speak to both of them about each other, but it didn't uh, end up in the film. Um, but uh, it, it's... It's interesting that he wanted to deracialize because he knew racism was a problem in the States. So he made the image kind of an off red, white and blue as he's not not the normal American red, 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 but red, white and blue nonetheless. And that word hope is something that the campaign asked him to put underneath. We've talked about Jim Fitzpatrick, who created the Viva Che image, uh, Shepard Ferry, who created the Obama Hope image. And when we left, we were talking about that. And you were talking about sort of the deracialized aspect of that as a graphic image, because Shepard Ferry said he knew that, you know, as an African-American candidate, that, you know, they had to do something in order to to sell this image. So they made it red, white, and blue, (laughs) which is kind of genius. But on, on another hand, I wonder if that would be the same today. I mean, we have to remember this was a little while ago now. Yeah, I, I don't think it would be the same today. I think people would be uh, much more, um, you know, wearing their differences yeah, on their yeah. sleeve. I mean, if you look at the town halls that are yeah, happening now, that's right. it's it's quite remarkable to see that people are people of color, are, are openly gay, um, women much more than ever yep. before, senior citizens, yeah, Joe yeah. Biden, uh, <laughs> and, you know, and, and of course, Bernie. Um and uh, it's it's so I think it would be different now. Although that image is pretty good. <laughs> oh, the, the image is great, and 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 honestly, I think I remember being I was in the United States a lot around that time when that the the poster first came out, uh, and and when it was just everywhere, yes. and just though that one word hope just seemed so potent yes. at the time. Things were a mess, yes. you know, coming off a very unpopular president, and and things were felt messy, and the idea and of, hopeless and, and hopeless and and. And selling the idea of hope in such a stark and interesting way, just one word. Yes. Not we're going to give you hope. We're not, we're, you know, just hope. 
I, I think that was as potent a message yes. as you could offer at that time. Yeah, I, I first really stared at the image um, when it first came out. I, I, I saw I was in Paris and I saw the poster, and it was the English Hope, mm-hmm. um, and I just remember staring, staring at it. But I've stared a lot at, at pop propaganda posters. I remember when Mao died in, yeah. in 76, I had a huge, that huge famous image of him. That, um, and it was on my closet door in my, <laughs> my parents' house. And I was just staring at Mao, staring at his mole, fascinated yeah. like that, that this man could take a hold and yeah. continues to take a hold. Uh, and I have a st- I have Stalin posters and I have uh, Lenin and the the, yeah. the Stalin stuff in propaganda the art of selling lies is quite extraordinary because he had a, a double yes and the story of the double is quite fascinating why don't you tell us a little bit about Stalin well, well there were actually there were actually a couple of um, there were a lot of films uh, Stalin became in effect. A, a film producer. I, you know, I used to say that um, you know Mussolini was an amateur violinist. Right. Hitler was a painter. Mao was a writer, uh, and and Stalin was was a, like a film producer. And I thought, ah, oh, those are the good old days when leaders cared about the arts. <laughs> 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 Being a little bit facetious, they had, they had other qualities that were less desirable. However, yeah, that's right. Um, but uh, which one? Which which demagogue were we talking about? Uh, Stalin. <laughs> we're talking about Stalin and his double. Um, yeah. So there were a couple of of actors. There were quite a few films yeah. depicting Stalin, and and two two actors in particular looked very much like him. The one that we feature in our film is uh, the Fall of Berlin, yeah. which really glorifies him as this godlike figure. Um, and and of course that poor actor could only yeah. be Stalin. He wasn't allowed to be anyone but Stalin. And of course, then Stalin dies in 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 March uh, 1953. He's decried at the 20th Party Congress in 56. I believe that actor actually died in 56. Yeah. Um, well, his so, career did. Anyway. His career, <laughs> yeah, and he wasn't. You know, people were not happy with yeah. him. There was a. Uh, the, the second actor who looked, uh, who also looked just like Stalin, who actually had worked with the Yiddish theater in Russia. Wow. Uh, and and Stalin was famously very anti-Semitic as well. Um, so so this guy, but but um, now one of the two, and I'm just yeah. forgetting now which because I've seen both. One of them came from the place that Stalin was from in Georgia, as opposed to, right. and and he did the accent perfectly of Stalin. I believe it's the one in our film. Mm-hmm. And uh, Stalin hated that because Stalin wanted to pretend that he was a proper Russian, right. not not from Georgia. Yeah. Uh, so he wasn't happy with him. But but if you look at if you don't really know what Stalin looks like, and you look at this actor, you think it is him. Yeah. No, he does. It's remarkable. Yeah. yeah, yeah except yeah. he's taller. His skin is better. His hair is darker. He's, he's the propagandized version yeah, exactly. of what, what Stalin wanted to project right. in a lot of ways. That's I'm speaking right. with Larry Weinstein, director of Propaganda, The Art of Selling Lies. Uh, interesting to talk about these films that were made uh, about Stalin because film has always been a tool of propaganda in the 20th century. Yes. Uh, you know, Hitler famously used it with the films of, of Lenny uh, Reifenstahl. Uh, you've got the Stalin films. There, uh, I mean, there are entire boatloads of of uh, German films that were made uh, in the in the the 40s during the war and then of course the American propaganda films yes. why is film such a, a, a potent delivery system for propaganda well I think people watching it are, yeah. are basically captive in a theater yeah. um, the German population by law 
had to attend the movies right. uh, by the studio Ufa, uh, and Ufa started in, in during World War One specifically as a propaganda tool, but then the war ended. So they started doing other things like Metropolis yeah, 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 and, yeah. and things like that, which happened to be Hitler's and Goebbels' favorite films. So they said, we want this studio for ourselves. And they started doing these hate, hate films. But, but with really startling images. Yes. And I think that's the thing. You have a whole generation of German expressionist filmmakers and, and people that like Fritz Lang and people like that. Yes. that, that Fritz Lang, who was Jewish. Yeah. Who, who came up, though, and, and really created a lot of the language that we still use in filmmaking today. In terms of creating yes. images that stick in the stick in your mind's yes. eye forever, yes. and Hitler and Goebbels used that knowledge to create these films yes. that were. I'll, I'll just mention that uh, both Hitler and, and Goebbels loved Fritz Lang's films, a number of his films, and decided they wanted him to be the official filmmaker for the Nazis. Yeah. Or, um, but he said, "I'm not doing that." Yeah. First of all, he was Jewish or half Jewish, and and then so, and they and so I think it was I can't remember if it was Goebbels or Hitler said. We will decide who is Jewish. Wow. So Lang left, yeah. went to the uh, United States, yeah. and the first film he made was a collaboration with Bertolt Brecht, A Hangman Also Die, yeah. Yeah. about the assassination of Heydrich, uh, who was the sort of the one who was going to take over for Hitler if, Hitler if Hitler had been assassinated, right. and who was the architect of the Holocaust, actually. So, so yeah, I mean, that, that's where, where they went. Um, and we'll talk in the next segment, because we've got more time left there, about Norman Lloyd. Mm-hmm. And the great dictator. So yes. Norman Lloyd is 104 years old, a Hollywood legend. And I'm giving this some space. We can talk about this. Uh, but he was a friend of Charlie Chaplin, who, of course, made The Great Dictator, one of the great propaganda films of all time. So we'll, we'll get to that and, and, and sort of wrap up our, our, our talk about film there. But I want to ask you, before we go, how do you ensure, and you've only got about a minute to answer this, how do you ensure when you're making a film about propaganda that you're not making a propaganda film. Oh, I am making a propaganda film. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's interesting that this film, um, I'm somebody who has, I've made about 35 films or so, and I've never allowed my own voice to be part of a film. I've never narrated a film. I don't believe in third-person narration. I try to make things very personal, but from the point of view of the person who the film is about, if I do that. Um, And I have never had my image in the film. This this one, we kind of broke the fourth wall. You see the crew, you see, uh, but also I'm the narrator of the film, and I'm... It, and I'm the one who's referring to it as a cautionary tale. I'm the one who says this is a call to action. I'm I'm aware that it's propaganda. All every, If all art is propaganda, then I'm also guilty. We have time. We've got a little chunk of time here. I want to talk about Norman Lloyd. So when I was uh, watching this film, uh, Jim Fitzpatrick, I'm like, of course he's in there. He created the Vivace image, Shepard Ferry, of course, Obama Hope, one of the great images of, of the 21st century. Norman Lloyd was less obvious to me as a guest, but then I was so thoroughly charmed by him. An actor who's worked with everyone from Hitchcock to Orson Welles to Friends with Charlie Chaplin, 104 years old, still sharp as attack. Why is he in the film? Because you love him. That's I love why he's him. in the film. Yeah, yeah. I, love, I love Norman <laughs> Lloyd. I, I actually had filmed him 25 years ago. I had made a film about a German composer named Hans Eisler, who was a communist composer. He was like the best friend of Bertolt Brecht. 
and Eisler left when Hitler came in and uh, was Oscar nominated for a bunch of things, uh, including Hangman Also mm-hmm. Die, um, which he wrote the music for. He also wrote the incredible score for um, uh, Shadows and Fog, uh, Night Night of. No, it's Shadows and Fog. Yeah, Shadows and Fog. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Shadows and Fog. I'm getting mixed up with the title of one of my own films. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That happens when you make 35 movies. Um, But I had interviewed him. He, he, um, at the time, he was talking about Hans Eisler and Bertolt Brecht and Arnold Schoenberg and all these people who kind of lived together and and Artie Shaw. um, He's like a Zelig character in that there is no major figure of the... 20th century that he probably didn't have dinner with. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah. Well, I, I was very aware of him and, and um, he was very kind to me uh, back in the mid nineties. And, and so I kept following him and, and I, as well as learning more about his history. And I, I realized his first, I mean, he's amazing. Yeah. He's had a sad card since 1932. Unbelievable. Screen so, Actors Guild card. Screen, yeah, yeah. Screen, yeah, that's right. Um, and still does. Um, and considered himself, although he considered himself to be a working actor still, though, you know, actually he hasn't been in a feature film since 2015. Right. Train <laughs> wreck. When he was 100 years old. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and for his birthday, his, I, this is an aside, but for his 102nd birthday, some friends took him to a World Series game. And he says, you know, I haven't done this since 1926. <laughs> With, and watching Babe Ruth wow, wow. with the Yankees. Isn't that something? <laughs> wow. Anyway, um, he's he, he started, really he started his main career um, with radio plays in the, in the 30s that were anti-fascist. Right. And, and then he was um, picked up by uh, the, the theater group of uh, Orson Welles got him to be- The Mercury Theater. Mercury Theater, but also this, uh, yeah. And, and so he, they did this incredible version of Julius Caesar and he was Cinna the poet. And um, he, he, it was this very, he, he, who was murdered and he is um, apparently the scene that he was in was the centerpiece to the entire um, play, which- upset Orson Welles because this was his chance. Orson right. was like, what, 22, 23? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this and a was... wonder kind still. Like he was, oh, yes. he was at that point yeah. the boy genius. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, he goes from doing that play, which was the biggest hit on yeah. Broadway and, and to to um, to War of the World's radio yeah. show to Citizen Kane. Yeah. So like three media. Yeah. Um, so so that by the time he's 25. So that, that's not bad. That's not a bad. <laughs> it's it's fa- hard to follow that yeah, on yeah. your resume. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so. So Norman Lloyd turned no, down yeah. a part in Citizen Well, Kane, yeah. Uh, what happened was um, uh, Orson Welles uh, knew he wanted to do that film and and he sort of retained his actors um, and, and asked them to stay on and paid them for a little while. But after all, he couldn't pay them anymore. So so some of the actors said, gee, we, we, we don't have work in, in Hollywood right now. We better go back to New York and pick up some other either theater work right. or other films. And so uh, Orson had chosen, Orson, first name basis, yeah. had chosen uh, a, a good role for Norman. But by that time, Norman had actually committed to an Alfred Hitchcock film. Right. right. And, and uh, it turns out it was, I never knew what role it was going to be. It was going to be Bernstein, the one who's 
it's through his point of view. Right, right, right. Yeah, and and it, so it was a major role. Yeah. But I asked Norman. I said, "Do you consider that to be one of your bigger career mistakes yeah. to turn down a, a Citizen Kane role?" And he said, "No, not at all." He said, "The thing about Orson Welles' films and and productions is, what do you think of?" you think of Orson Welles. When you think about Hitchcock, you think about the story. You think about the characters. So he took on Saboteur. Uh, He played this German spy who who, um, eventually is caught and who is... uh, um, spoiler alert! It's yeah. a 1940 film, but he um, basically is is captured on the top of the Statue and, of Liberty and and tossed off and tossed yeah. off <laughs> and and to his death and, and as as he's holding on actually, but the the stitches of his jacket start right. to rip, and one by one by one, <laughs> and then he falls to his death. Um, and uh, so he says, Hitchcock, people said he wasn't political. And he goes, he was. <laughs> but that's an outtake. That's not in our film. Right. Well, see, that's what director's cuts are for. The film is called <laughs> Propaganda, The Art of Selling Lies. Uh, and it's directed by my guest, Larry Weinstein. He was also, Norman Lloyd, a friend of Charlie Chaplin. Yes. And so we, that's the sort of the focus of, yes. of the segment in the film. Uh, for those who haven't seen The Great Dictator, there's a couple of things that are fascinating about well there's more than a couple of things it's a film that people still study in film school uh it was the first time i think that uh chaplin directly addressed the audience there's a a a section at the film at the end where he breaks character becomes charlie chaplin and talks directly to the audience which must have blown people's minds because he was the biggest star in the world uh at that time and had rarely ever i mean people really hadn't heard him speak yes yeah yeah, he was um, basically yes, addressing the audience. It was he was giving a message of tolerance, of hope, of compassion. He was being everything that he considered Adolf Hitler was the antithesis yeah. to, and he was playing Adolf Hitler. Uh, I, I mean, he's two characters. Yeah. He's this young, this this barber who's sort of based on the tramp character yeah. of Charlie Chaplin, and then he's this who looks like the Hinkle. dictator. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's right. And then there's Hinkle, who's this Hitlerian character yeah. who famously holds that globe, that, and dances and, and, with it, and dances all. Yeah. with it, and it's it's so incredible. Um, Hitler, by the way, they, apparently there was a private screening for Hitler and his pals. Um, and Hitler laughed uh, uh, reportedly at the at the send up of Mussolini, <laughs> but was less enthusiastic about the send up yeah, of himself. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's an interesting film. Like yeah. to see Trump's response to Alec Baldwin on on Saturday Night Live. Well, just follow the tweets. <laughs> Follow the tweets, and I think you'll you'll get an idea of how yeah. he feels about that. But Norman Lloyd uh, really knew t- um, uh, Chaplin because of playing tennis with him, right? And um, he he was a, uh, Norman was a very good tennis player, and and uh, Charlie less so. Charlie um, wouldn't wear glasses, um, and and so see the ball. He, he couldn't yeah really <laughs> see the ball. So so uh, I asked Norman. I said, I know you adore him, but come on, admit it. You were a much better tennis player than Charlie Chaplin. He goes, I was a lot. better. Better than a lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. 104-year-old braggart. That's right. (laughs) Who's invited me to his 105th birthday this November. That's amazing. Yeah. And you'll have to go. I have to go. You have to go. Yeah. Uh, How has technology, we've just got a couple of minutes left, and we'll wrap up our conversation of propaganda, the art of selling lies, new documentary from director Larry Weinstein, uh, with a question about how technology has affected propaganda. I think of technology being everything from Twitter, 
which is you know used yeah. via this this technological uh, uh, thing, this computer we all hold in our hands every day, um, to you know um, being able to mass produce things in a way that you've never been able to before. Uh, how has it affected propaganda? Well, there's, you know, a lot of thought about this and where that's going. Um, you know, we have BuzzFeed um, and Craig Silverman, who, who's the head of BuzzFeed here in Toronto. He's the one who actually coined the term fake news, yeah. which then was bastardized by the president. Yeah. Um, fake news is, uh, he, he. I mean, he just discovered a lot of sources, especially during the 2016 election uh, about, about that were fake, that were out blatantly fake, yeah. almost always against Hillary. Um, it's remarkable how, when you consider how close that election was, yeah. all these factors that we hear about every day that would have swayed it her way yeah. and what a different world we'd be living in now. And probably there'd be other international leaders that wouldn't have gotten in that were somehow empowered by right. the, the American demagogue. Yeah, yeah, the sort of but, coarseness of the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so, so of course, social media is huge, and Facebook is is in many countries. Facebook is the internet. It's the only thing they know on the internet. And sometimes this whole thing that was set up as a, a way to communicate to your loved ones and and send cat send, videos yeah, around, yeah, uh, actually has been spreading hate, a lot of hate messages, and had has actually directly led to genocide. We have to leave it there. Unbelievable. Are we, we have to leave, leave it on, on genocide. genocide. We're, we're going to have to, but it is interesting. I think that the one of the major battles coming uh, for us, just as a society, is to figure out what to do with social media in the coming years and how and if we're going to be able to police it. But that's a story for another episode. Yes. Larry Weinstein has been my guest. The film is called Propaganda: The Art of Selling Lies. You can see it in Toronto at Hot Docs in Vancouver at Doxu, and then next month it will be in theaters at a theater near you. Uh, so check it out. It's a fascinating look at something that I think we all think we have an idea about it. This dives a little deeper than probably any of us have. It's good stuff. Uh, thank you for uh, listening. My thanks to Nick Mariano on the board, and we'll talk again next week.